Okay, the story begins. We are on chapter 45, page 583. This is one of the shorter chapters. So we're continuing our discussion about Kavana. We've been talking about Kavana for some time now, pretty much for the last uh, six, seven chapters. We've been talking about serving God authentically. And we've been taking a two-prong approach. When it comes to serving God, right, a bird needs two wings. There's the two wings. There's the wing of love. There's the wing of reverence. These are the two prongs, and they give flight to our service. Although they're not necessarily the essence of the service, service is get the deed done. But part of getting the deed done is experiencing it. And that's where love comes in. That's where reverence comes in. And we've been talking a great deal about various meditations to develop reverence, to develop a sense of awe, and to develop a sense of love. And there's multiple levels of love, multiple levels of reverence. Today, we discuss a third prong. A third, uh, a third leg, right? For a table to really be stable, it needs three legs. Two legs won't do it, right? Take a look on 583. It's the first bold paragraph. It's the middle of the page. Also, there's a straightforward way for a person to observe all the mitzvahs authentically with real emotions for God, a method which has been reached, which has reached us from the Baal Shem Tov. So there's another path that we're going to discuss to be able to serve God authentically. By the way, this is essentially the whole Tanya. The whole Tanya is helping us serve God authentically. That's pretty much what it all boils down to, right? We don't like to feel like hypocrites. We want to feel that what we are doing on the outside is a real representation of who we are on the inside. And Natanya is helping us understand who we are on the inside. And part of doing this, uh, serving God authentically, is loving God, revering God. But there's a third level here. There's a third uh, leg here, a third prong. The next paragraph, second bold paragraph on the page. And this is through awakening the emotional attribute associated with our father, Yaakov, Jacob of blessed memory, which is the quality of compassion. So each of the patriarchs represents a different trait. Abraham represented the trait of love, of kindness. Abraham was um, an exceptionally kind person an exceptionally loving person, right? What was Abraham doing the, the, several days after he got his bris at the age of 99 in the hot, on a hot desert day? The Torah says he was waiting for guests outside his tent. And his tent had four doors in each direction. He wanted guests to be ex as accessible as possible. He was a loving kind of person. Okay. Contrast to Isaac. Isaac represented discipline. Isaac represented reverence. Isaac was more strict of a character. He didn't travel much, stayed in the land of Israel. And 
that's the trait that he traditionally is associated with. And being polarized with either of these traits are not healthy, right? Abraham embodied the trait of love. And if you just have love, what happens? He has a good boy chick. He has it. He has Isaac, right? But he also had Yishmael, Isaac's brother, right? Wasn't such a good boy chick. Okay, so Isaac said, let me take the opposite extreme. Let me embody the trait of discipline, of reverence. He had a good boy chick. He gave birth to Jacob, to Yaakov. But he also gave birth to Asaph. So the opposite extreme doesn't work either. There has to be a balance. And that's what compassion is. Compassion is a balance between love and reverence, between love and respect. And we'll explain what this means soon. Jacob had 12 righteous sons. Now, what do we mean by compassion? Serving God with compassion. Right? Serve God with love. You love God. Serve God with reverence means you revere God. Those motivate observance. Who are we having compassion on? What does it mean to have compassion on God? Does God need our compassion? <laughs> is God that such a, is God a, you know, we say in, in Hebrew or in Yiddish, a nebach, right? Is God a nebach? Is God nebish? He needs us to feel compassionate for him. What exactly is going on here? This is going to be brilliant because it's going to really help us frame our mind. We're going to have another meditation homework. And here it is. Take a look at the next paragraph. Here's what we need to do. You can do this first. Sorry, you can do this by first before the observance of a mitzvah, stirring in your mind a great deal of compassion before God over the spark of godliness that gives life to your soul, which has descended from its origin and the source of life, the blessed infinite one, who fills all worlds and transcends all worlds, and in his presence, everything is considered zero. So think about this. Our neshama, our soul, is part and parcel with God, is in the heavenly kingdom, and has to come down and put up with us. <laughs> Our soul has to put up with us. And not, not that we're so bad, but compare the clarity that you have in heaven compared to this world. The clarity of what life is all about, the, the clarity of what existence is all about. Right? Um, going back to the piano analogy, right? You have the same piece of furniture. To one person, it's a piano, it makes music. To another person, it's a piece of furniture. And to a woodpecker, it's dinner, right? Depending on what reality you're coming from. The most honest reality is the person who sees it as a tool for making music. The one who sees it as dinner is missing something, right? In this world, we're missing something. We don't get the full picture. And we could thank the Klippa for that. We could thank God for hiding himself. We could thank Simpson for that. But think about that. Our soul went from a place of total clarity and spiritual bliss and has to come into a body and is now pulled in all sorts of directions 
where it doesn't necessarily feel comfortable, where it is contrary to its values and, and natural habitat. Um, where are we? Um, okay, I'm, the fourth line of the, of the last bold paragraph, which has descended from its origin, the source of all life, the blessed infinite one, who fills all worlds, transcends all worlds, his presence, and in his presence, everything is considered zero. And that spark of godliness became enmeshed with the body. So we have this pristine, beautiful, pure soul, right? We, we recite this actually in the morning prayers. We say, God, my God, the soul that you gave to me is pure. And we describe how it comes down from, uh, from level to level, ultimately into the body, which is compared to a primordial serpent's skin, as the Zohar calls it, which is far from the light of the king's face, as far as can be. And the reason is because this world is an extreme expression of vulgar klipa. Quick reminder about what klipa is. Right, klipa. We use the word klipa for to describe negative energy, unholy energy. Klipa literally means a shell or a peel, because were I to hold up an orange and say, "Hey, what do you see?" You tell me, Josh. I see an orange. No, you've been fooled. You see an orange peel. And you're so used to that orange peel, you start calling it orange, even though it's just an orange peel. You don't even see the orange. You have to peel that back, right? That's what klipa does. Klipa distorts our vision. Klipa distorts our vision. So now we see or, or we, we judge based on what we see rather than based on what is, right? You look at a person, the first thing you notice is their body, not their soul. You look at the world, and you see the physical architect of the world rather than its soul, God, right? We see what is a uh, klipa enables us to see only surface deep. And to go beyond the surface, we're going to need a little bit of faith. So now the soul comes into the body and is distorted by this klipa. It doesn't have the clarity it once had, right? We gotta feel a little bad for this soul. <laughs> think about how uncomfortable, think, think about it this way. Let, let me put it this way. Um, yeshiva Bachar comes straight out of yeshiva, straight out of rabbinical school, from this sheltered environment, from this holy environment, from this sacred environment, He's on a mission and he moves to some far off community to spread the word of God. He's doing good things, but you got to realize for a moment how uncomfortable he may be in the environment he was just put in compared to where we came from, right? Our soul may feel like a fish out of water sometimes. Our soul may feel distant from God. Just by virtue, by the way, even if you didn't do anything wrong, it'd be a big tzaddik, big, just by virtue of existing in this physical world. Again, remind ourselves, what does the Hebrew word world mean? Olam means a concealment. This world conceals God. We're in a reality where God is 
by default not perceived unless we exert ourselves, unless we work ourselves, unless we study the Tanya, unless we pray, unless we do mitzvahs, study Torah. So by default, the, the soul really is hidden. Uh, it, it doesn't see God as it once did. a little sad you know there's a tradition um that at a shalom zahar at a at a when a baby's born you know wait, wait, let me when somebody passes away there's a meal there's a traditional meal that they have they traditionally have brown foods do you remember the episode in the torah where where jacob was cooking stew, soup, lentil soup for his father, Isaac. And Asaph came and said, I want some of that soup. Jacob said, sell me your birthright, right? And he sold it for beans, right? Do you know what I'm referring to? Why or was some Jacob, of the red stuff. Right, exactly. Some of that red stuff. Why was Jacob cooking lentils? The reason is because the, the commentaries tell us that right before then, Abraham passed away, Isaac's father. So Isaac was in mourning. And the traditional morning food are round beans, lentils or, or whatever it is, because round represents the circle of life. Mourners also traditionally have eggs. Eggs are around the circle of life. There's also a tradition that when somebody's born, we have chickpeas, same idea, because they're round, circle of life. But why would we have morning food when somebody's born? When somebody's born, we're celebrating. But for the soul, it's a very uncomfortable transition. The soul, to us, they're born a new person. But, to, but from his perspective, I just left a very comfortable heaven. Just by being virtue of being born, just the virtue of being born has a toll on the soul. And again, the soul is part and parcel with God. But take it to the next level. What That's if I'm even just totally righteous in this world, right? But what happens if I sin? What does that do to the soul? Right? Take a look on 584 on the top. And your compassion will be especially profound when you recall your own bad ways and doings, all your actions, spoken words, and thoughts you have carried out since the day we were born, which were not good. So when we think about, number one, the virtue of being born into this physical corporal world, when we add to that the fact that we may not have been on our best behavior 100% of our life, how, is that, how did that impact our soul, right? So the feeling that we get from this is compassion. I, wanna, I feel bad for my soul. I feel bad that I'm not as close to God as I wanted to be. which ideally should push me. The point is not to, to depress ourselves, God forbid, um, and to walk around feeling guilty. The point is to push ourselves forward. In fact, this really isn't even about us. If a person, if we were to stop the class right here, we'd walk away thinking, Natanya wants us to feel bad about ourselves. But no, it's not true. It's not even about us. It's not about you. Don't worry. Don't worry. 
right? It's, it's not about you. There's a deeper point here. It's actually about God. We're not feeling bad for ourselves. We're feeling bad for God because this soul is a piece of God, right? The soul is literally a piece of God. Reflect back, please, on, on chapter two. Beginning of chapter two, page 44. Beginning of the chapter, the first bold line. The second soul, the Israelite, the so-called divine soul, is a piece of God above, literally. It's literally a piece of God. Let's go back to our chapter here. Which means, what happens to the soul, to some degree, affects God because they're part and parcel. So if our soul is in uncomfortable, who's really uncomfortable? Right? It's like algebra. If our, if our soul is a piece of God and our soul is uncomfortable, then who is really uncomfortable? God. Right. Hmm. So what we're doing here is not trying to feel bad about ourselves, God forbid. Point isn't to feel guilty, to feel bad. The point is to realize the impact that we have, for better or for worse, literally on God. Or I shouldn't say literally, uh, maybe figuratively, because God really is the creator and, and, and is way beyond everything. The, um, the soul is often referred to as a rope because again the, the level of soul we're referring to is the trait of compassion the Jacob the Yaakov and take a look at what the verse says take a look on 584 the second to last bold paragraph for God's portion is his people Yaakov Jacob is allotted inheritance but the, the word allotted chavel, can also mean rope because our connection to God is often referred to as a rope. Because what happens when you pull, when you have a rope hanging from the top to the bottom, from heaven to earth? You jolt the rope and it shakes up above, right? So the soul, something happens to our soul here, and it actually affects God because they're part and parcel. When we are in exile, God is in exile, right? In chapter. Um, in chapter 24, we gave the analogy. We spoke about this concept um, briefly in chapter 24. We gave the analogy of taking a king's head. Who remembers the swirly from high school? Anyone? You know what a swirly is? No. Okay, well, we'll have to read it inside then. Take a look on 283. Um, it's the second to last bold paragraph on 283. Starts with as explained above. You see it? This is chapter 24. So as explained above in chapter two, that the root and source of every Jewish soul in the house of Israel is from the supernal Chachma, 
Chachmas Bitzel, right, which is intimately bound with God because he and his Chachma are one. And to take such a holy entity as the soul and drag it into sin is comparable to taking the king's head and dragging it down and dunking his face into a toilet full of excrement. There is no greater humiliation than that, even if a person does it just for that moment. A sin might be for one moment, but the soul, the impact that it has on the soul impacts God. The soul is part of God. So if we're staining the soul, we're staining God. We're not feeling bad about ourselves. It's not about us. We're feeling bad about the impact that we're having on God's presence in this world. I'll tell you a story. There was a rabbi in Kfar Chabad. Kfar Chabad is a village in Israel. The yeshiva there had a noted rabbi named Rabbi Shlomo Chaim Kesselman. And he was giving an informal talk to the yeshiva students. They were having a forbringen. They were sitting down, saying l'chaim, singing inspirational songs, talking about the meaning of life. And Reb Shloim Chaim was talking about teshuvah, returning to God, repentance. And there was one student there. You know, he wasn't reprimanding anybody. He was talking about the concept of, you know, the, and this one student apparently had been around the block and realized he needs to come back home, figuratively speaking. And he began crying. And amidst his crying, he starts saying how bad of a person he is. And Reb Shlomo Chaim looks at him and says, uh -uh -uh. this just became about you. <laughs> That's not, those are arrogant tears. You're crying about how bad of a person you are. Why is this about you? If you're crying that you've impacted God's uh, perceptual presence in this world, that's one thing. You know, our sins impact our soul, which impacts God. But you're just saying you're a bad person. No, no, no. Don't, don't think about it. Way. It's, not, it's not even about us. But the point is, so, so, Think about this meditation for a moment. We could try this at home, homework. Here's the homework. Think about the journey that our soul took to this world. You know, the, the soul kind of has a um, little bit of a dichotomy in terms of how happy it is to be here. On the one hand, it's on a mission from God. On the other hand, it's very uncomfortable. And think about the discomfort the soul experiences just by existing in this world. Think about further the discomfort the soul experiences through our sins. Think about the impact that has on the divine presence, which is part and parcel with our soul. And the reaction should not, God forbid, be depression or sadness that we're doing it wrong. The reaction should be, I feel compassion for God. Okay, then what? <laughs> what should that compassion motivate? What should that actually motivate me for, to, to do? Okay, so each character in the Bible, in the Torah, represents a different trait, right? We said Abraham represents love. Isaac, reverence. Jacob, 
compassion. There's other characters in the Torah too that represent other traits as well. Rachel. Rachel was Jacob's wife and his cousin. Right? Jacob married his first cousin and his wife. You know what they say in, in Utah? If I divorce my wife, is she still my sister? Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Gotta have a little humor, right? So <laughs> Jacob meets his cousin for the first time. And what is the first thing he did? Anybody remember from the Torah? So, so some, let's take a step back. Jacob um, purchases the blessings from his brother Esav and the birthright from his brother Esav. Esav is upset about this. He doesn't believe it's a proper sale. And what do you do when you're not happy about a sale? Did he not bite his ear? Did he bite his he ear? He bit something. He, he did try to, to, to bite his neck. His neck, that's what he bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, the, and the Torah says, what do you do when you buy something and you're not happy about the, uh, or somebody else buys something that you intended on buying? And you gave them permission, but you regret your decision. You what you do is you kill them, right? Not obvious, isn't that the logical thing? So, a sub goes. You regift re, re it. Yeah, exactly. So, a sub wants to kill Jacob. Serious family feud. Jacob bounces. He's advised by his parents to go visit his uncle, Lavan. And he goes and visits his uncle Lavan. And Lavan has two daughters. And the first daughter was his cousin, Rachel. And what's the first thing Jacob does when he meets Rachel? Uh, well, he requests to marry her. Right, but, but even before that, before he even said anything, it was a it was a quite well, they, um, it was quite an introduction. The, they met at the water at the, the water thing. He, yeah, 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 exactly. T take a look at the bottom of 585. And this is the mystical, the, the bottom bold paragraph in Hebrew, uh, or not Hebrew, but uh, above the line there. And this is the mystical meaning of the verse. And Yaakov, Jacob, kissed Rachel. He lifted his voice and he cried. Right? What an introduction. Okay, but there's a mystical meaning here. There, there, the, uh, this did literally happen but it represents something so much deeper. Again, everything in the Torah has, everything in existence has a body and soul to it, and the Torah is no different. There's the literal storyline that took place, but there's the deeper um, Kabbalistic meaning behind it. Jacob represents the trait of compassion. Rachel represents the Jewish people. That's what Kabbalah explains. Take a look on 586. So, Compassion met the Jewish people, the souls, right? Since Rachel, top of 586, since uh, Rachel represents the spiritual energy referred to by the Zohar as Knesset Yisrael, the source of all souls, and Jacob in his supernal paradigm is a reflection of the divine energy and compassion of the world of Atzilus, of the divine attributes, so go to the next bold paragraph. Jacob, Yaakov stirs great compassion for her. 
And he lifted his voice up toward the supernal compassion, which is called the father of all compassion to its source. We'll go down to the next bold paragraph. We're just reading it quickly and we'll explain soon. And he cried to stir up the subsequently pulled down from their great compassion and all the soul. So Jacob met Rachel and he kissed her. He embraced her. In other words, he drew compassion down onto her, onto the souls. Compassion met the Jewish souls, right? When we have compassion, that impacts our soul. And when we have compassion, we get to kiss God. Because what are we motivated to do when we have compassion for God? When we realize how distant our soul has become from him. How dimmed or stained our souls become. We are hopefully motivated to get the soul back on track. We want to study Torah. When we study the words of Torah, we are kissing God. When we do a mitzvah with our hands, we are embracing God. We are hugging God. Exactly what Jacob did to Rachel. Right? There's this whole spiritual dynamic here. Compassion equals, and compassion for God equals an embracement and a deep intimate relationship. Compassion should motivate us to study the Torah, to study the word of God, to study his will, and to physically embrace God with his mitzvahs. Okay, so we know the power of compassion. We know how to develop compassion for God. We now know that he needs our compassion, or we need our compassion, I should say, for him. And we know the impact of the compassion. Okay. Right. The outcome of compassion should be. I want to embrace God. I want to be intimate with God. I want to study his Torah. I want to do his mitzvahs. Because I didn't realize how far I was. Right. Jacob didn't realize how far he was from Rachel. Even though he never met her before. But they were cousins, and he knew he was going to marry her. And he was, it struck a deep chord when he met her. When we re-meet God and, and experience that compassion, we will have a similar reaction. Now, the again, all of the characters of the Torah represent different traits. So take a look on the bottom of 588. The verse says, that Jacob, Jacob redeemed Abraham. Again, Jacob is compassion. Abraham is love. Compassion redeemed love, right? Jacob redeemed Abraham. If we have compassion, that's going to lead to love. If we feel bad for the impact that our actions have had on our soul and on God, and we act upon that compassion to embrace God, the result will be love, right? Take, take a look at the middle. We're going, I know we're going out of order here. The middle of 588, the second bold paragraph. It's the middle of the page, smack in the middle. Through this process of meditation described in this chapter of arousing compassion on your soul, you can come to experience a great love palpably in your heart. So there, there's kind of this feedback loop. I feel compassionate for my soul. I feel compassionate for God because I realize the impact 
my actions have had on him. And I'm now motivated to kiss God, studying his Torah with my mouth, studying his words, to embrace God, performing his mitzvahs with my hands. And now compassion could ultimately lead to, lead to love and I can love God. I can feel passionate about God. Okay. That's my story. I'm sticking to it.